0: privilege to be with you this morning and able to, to share the word. Um, as you noticed I'm not only a student of the Old Testament, just Bible in general and theology and church history, things that really something that interests me and I mean, I've been studying it formally for a long time but I also grew up in it. with My dad as the pastor and listening to his, his messages and him kind of I, in high school I tried to get him to teach me to learn Greek. But he kind of just gave me some books, and I think maybe he'd forgotten it enough by then. He was didn't, didn't want to admit it, though, or something. But um, but that kind of passion has stayed with me, and it's, um, it's a privilege to be able to to be here and sh- and use that um, to share with you. Um, let's see. Now I should mention that Matt is, is kind of a tough act to follow, so... His range of motion might be from the piano to the keyboard, there, but if I get outside these two stands here, that'll probably be pretty exciting. So <laughs> just, uh, just you know, fair warning, if I'm not bouncing back and forth across the stage like a ping pong ball. But, um, just, to mm-hmm, <laughs> just, just to the left, yes. All right, so let me just uh, open with a, a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, just thank you for the opportunity to be with this, uh, this body and worship together and to uh, exalt your name in song and in, uh, in reading of your word and in uh, uh, preaching and teaching. just pray your blessing on these few minutes that we have together and that you would uh, uh, be present powerfully in this, in this room and um, that the gospel would be preached and you would be glorified in Christ's name. <laughs> I'll try to be comfortable, so Now, I think this should take maybe a, about a half an hour, and I'm mentioning that to so if I go over, you shouldn't be too uh, too upset because some 250 years ago sermons ran like three, four hours long. So 35 minutes, three hours. you know it could be worse. so. All right, but today we're going to be looking at the uh, the book of Ruth. I want to start with telling you a story. So, long ago, there was a woman, and her name was Pleasant. She was a wife and a mother, and she lived with her husband and two sons in a sleepy little village in the hills, right on the edge of a desert. And life was quiet for her family. Her sons were growing into handsome young men, still too young to marry but Pleasant knew they would be good husbands someday, just like hers was. But their quiet and comfortable life didn't last. There was a drought. They had to sell their food or their land to buy food. Only there wasn't any food to buy in their village. So Pleasant packed up with her husband and sons and moved to the fertile land on the other side of that desert. Her husband insisted they'd only be there a short time. But Pleasant wasn't so sure. She was nervous about moving to a new place and living among new people who did not believe in their God. Now, at first, things went well in their new home. There was enough food They got along well with their new neighbors. Pleasant was just starting to feel happy and content in their new home when tragedy struck. Her husband died suddenly. Now, he had been quite a bit older than she was, but he wasn't an old man, and he appeared to be in good health up until the end. So Pleasant was left with her two sons sons who were barely old enough now to marry. So after her husband died, Pleasant wanted to return home. Her sons insisted they stay. Mother, there's, there's still drought back home, and we do not yet have enough money to buy back father's land, they said. They did, however, have enough money to pay the bride price and secure wives for themselves from local families. So their short time in a foreign land had turned into something of a permanent residence. Ten years go by, Pleasant is getting old. She still has no grandchildren. Both of her daughters-in-law have remained childless. Now that alone is a tragedy that weighs daily on Pleasant's heart. But one day she gets devastating news. Her sons are both dead. So Pleasant is left in a foreign land with no family, no money, no way to provide for her daily needs apart from the kindness of her neighbors. Neighbors who do not trust in her God and who still view her as an outsider even after she's lived among them for a decade. So you may have recognized Pleasant's story as a creative retelling of Ruth 1, to 1-5. So I understand you've been studying 1 Samuel recently. So that's the story of Samuel, David, Saul. And the book of Ruth is sort of a, a prequel to that. Um, Ruth is David's great-grandmother. And 1 Samuel tells the story of Israel's rough transition from leadership of the judges to the rule of a king. Samuel is the last of the judges, and Saul is the first of the kings. But his failings lead to God choosing David to be king instead. Now the stories in 1 Samuel reveal God's faithfulness to his promises amidst hopeless circumstances, where his own people seem to lack the faith that he will come through for them. And the story in the book of Ruth similarly emphasizes God's love and care for those in hopeless circumstances. But instead of a story of salvation for the whole nation, it's a story of redemption for an old widow and her barren daughter-in-law. Now, the time of the judges. It came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. There was a famine in the land. A certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So this first verse of the book of Ruth is packed with details, setting the background for the story. It was the time of the judges, but it was probably pretty late in, in that time. In fact, I think it was likely around the same time as the events of 1 Samuel 1, where Baron Hannah prays for a son. And get that counting back from how many... Generations there are between Ruth and David and Samuel and uh, David. So the time of the Judges was a mixed bag for the tribes of Israel. Over and over the book of Judges reports how they turned away from God, suffered, and called out to God again for deliverance. Judges ends implying that Israel needed a king to break the cycle of apostasy and lead them back to God. Judges twenty one twenty five says in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's a lot of lawlessness going on. People fighting, being invaded, fighting each other, not only outside fighting but even within their own tribes of Israel, fighting each other. So there's a lot of, a lot of chaos, a lot of lawlessness, a lot of wickedness. You know from 1 Samuel that Saul didn't turn out to be the king to break that cycle of apostasy and wickedness and bring Israel back to proper worship of God. The book of Ruth reveals how God worked in unexpected ways, preserving the family that would produce that much-needed king, David. So Even as Saul wasn't that king, David proved to be that king that would break the cycle and bring people back to God. So we see in Acts 13, it's talking about when God had removed him, that's Saul, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. So Ruth is a story of how God saved the ancestors of David, the king after God's own heart. Think I'm back. Um, At least it wasn't one of those mics that goes around the ear, that little cord. I mean, that would just get lost in my beard. There might still be one in here somewhere from last time. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. This famine fits right in with uh, the struggles that Israel was facing during the time of the judges. There was a famine. So for example, in Judges six, three to five, it says it might be kind of small, but all right, so this six three to five is talking about Israel had sown, they planted their crops, Midianites, Amalekites, other outsiders would come in and against them, they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth. So they planted their crops and others would come in and, and destroy them. And they would leave no sustenance for Israel and enter the land to destroy it. And it says, it says they would come in as numerous as locusts. So, like, locusts are known for, they could just come in, destroy all the crops, and leave nothing left. Right. So, in some cases, famine symbolized God's judgment on Israel for turning away from him. So, Deuteronomy 28 lists uh, the blessings Israel could expect if they obeyed God, but it also lists the judgments they could expect if they did not obey. In Deuteronomy 28:48. Pretty well sums up what's happening here in Judges 6, 3 to 5, but it could also if, reflect what was going on in, in Ruth 1, 1. So this is one of the curses. It says, Therefore, you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in need of everything, and he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. So this uh, curse is part of it will be being hungry, thirsty, and in need. Now in Judges 6, God makes it clear that Israel's experiencing this oppression because of their disobedience. And so 6, uh, six through ten here lists out you know, Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. The children of Israel cried out to God. And in this, usually in this cycle in Judges, then God sends them a, a deliverer to, to free them. In this passage, says God sends them a prophet. And the prophet tells them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, brought you out of the house of bondage, I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you, and gave you their land. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. So they cried out for, to God, and God says, Hey, I, you didn't obey, that's why this is happening. Just like... I warned you ahead of time. So even though Ruth one never links this famine with God's judgment for Israel's disobedience, setting the story in the days of the judges invites the readers to consider that connection. Is this famine God's judgment for the people's disobedience? Or is it just a famine, just a natural disaster? We don't know yet. So it came to pass the the days when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So in biblical times, it wasn't unusual for people to move around during times of famine, traveling to areas where where food is available. One um, clear example is in Genesis 12.10 now there was a famine in the land Abraham went down to Egypt to dwell there for the famine was severe in the land this story Genesis 12 it starts in exactly the same way with exactly the same words there was a famine in the land and he went to dwell the word to dwell doesn't mean he immigrated and settled there permanently and never planned to go back it means he went to live there temporarily until his situation changed So the same thing is going on in Ruth 1.1. Genesis 26, the same thing. There was a famine in the land. Isaac is thinking about going to Egypt. He gets as far as the territory of the Philistines. And God says, no, don't go all the way to Egypt. Dwell here. And again, dwell is stay here for a little while. And again, Genesis forty. 1 and 42, the ferryman was severe. Jacob sends his sons down to Egypt to buy food. That's not a f- complete move. They went down there to buy food and they came back. But if you know the rest of the Genesis story, eventually they moved there completely for a time. And we'll talk about that. All right, so this move from to Moab from Bethlehem wasn't unusual, and it fits this pattern from these Genesis examples, going to a foreign country where uh, you might not be fully welcome. Now the territory of Moab, um, right here, is just on the other side of, this is all the wilderness of Judah, Dead Sea, Moab, and there's um, kind of a fertile plateau on, the Moab's side, like past the, the desert, and then Judah in the hills where Bethlehem is, it's still in this fertile hill country area. So you have um, two usually fertile agricultural areas divided by the wilderness and the Dead Sea. And it's possible that Moab's um, fertile plateau is still producing grain even as there was famine back in Judah. But alternately, the shortage in Judah may have not been from natural causes at all. You remember the situation in Judges 6. Invaders intentionally crippled the land's ability to produce food and provide for its people. But the text in Ruth never tells us the exact cause of this famine, just as in the Genesis narratives where the cause for this famine is, is not as important as the fact that there was a famine. So life happens. Sometimes bad things happen. So we still don't know yet, is this famine kind of a judgment, or is this just one of those things that happens in life? So the, the famine fits the expectation for hard times during the time of the judges. But whether the famine was punishment for Israel's behavior isn't the point for the story. While the story set in the time of the judges, it doesn't make a big deal out of that same Chaotic cycle of wickedness and repentance and coming back to God and then turning away again. It's this whole thing that goes on and on in, in just in Judges, but it's not here in, in Ruth. The famine merely sets events in motion. Family from Bethlehem moves out of the land of promise and back to the land of Moab. Now, on a on a small scale, they're undoing the work of the conquest, returning to the place Israel camped before they entered the promised land. See in Numbers and in Deuteronomy talks about. Israelites, before they entered the land, they were camped on the plains of Moab for a couple of years. So maybe something else is at work in this detail, though, because we could accuse Abraham of making the same mistake. He had just settled in Canaan, the land of God that God had promised for his descendants, and then he up and leaves because of a famine. Abram came to the land of Canaan. He passed through the land. The Lord appeared to him and said, To your descendants I will give this land. That's verse 7. So now there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt to dwell there. So was kind of well, what's going on. You just got in the land God had promised you. Now you, you left because of a famine. Maybe something else is going on with this kind of famine story in, in, this, in the Bible. Now, one interesting thing about famines in biblical narratives is, even though they appear to be disasters, they often end up advancing God's plan. So Abraham returns from Egypt wealthier than before. Famine leads Jacob eventually to settle in Egypt. And he sets up the circumstances for the Exodus. The Exodus is the defining moment of Old Testament salvation, where God intervened mightily to rescue his people. the Exodus becomes sort of the paradigm for what God's salvation looks like throughout the Old Testament and even into the New, where if you read the Gospel of Matthew, it's setting up Jesus as uh, an Exodus-type story of God's salvation, God intervening mightily to to save his people. Um, So the famine just sets up this. It looks like a disaster, but it's part of a story advancing God's plan. That biblical pattern could hint that this famine in Ruth also foreshadows another story of God's provision. Right, so why is all of this background about the time of the judges important for understanding what's going on for Naomi? Well, she sees the same cycle of divine judgment at work in her own life. So the hand of the Lord has gone out against me, she says in one thirteen. 1.13. And then once she arrives in Bethlehem, everybody greets her and they say, oh, is this Naomi? She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? She sees herself under God's, as if she's under God's judgment. And most English Bibles have footnotes here to help us make sense of Naomi's kind of Like, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara thing, because Naomi means pleasant or sweet or favored, and Mara means bitter. So in Hebrew, there's a word play going on in this this verse where she's essentially saying, call me bitter, not sweet, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And so why would Naomi blame God for her suffering, though? In this cycle in Judges shows Israel sinning, God punishing them for the sin, they repent, God saves them, and then they lapse back into sin and idolatry again, and then they're judged and repent, and it just goes on and on through the Book of Judges. You can there's charts in Genesis or in Judges commentaries to just have this cycle kind of going across the timeline of here's how they do it over and over and over and over. So she must be thinking that all disasters, all the bad things that could happen to us must be a judgment for my sin. But The text gives us no reason to think that Naomi has sinned by turning away from God. Rather, she thinks God has turned against her. So in eight, she hopes that God will deal kindly with her daughters-in-law and bless them, for example. This is after her sons have died, after her husband has died. They're on the way back to Bethlehem. She says, the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. So the word translated kindly here is hesed. It's the Hebrew word for God's covenant love, or often translated like his loving kindness, his special, loyal covenant love for his people, his unconditional love. And to me, this suggests that Naomi still trusts the Lord, even through these circumstances, But her belief that God has afflicted her, it also reminds me of the book of Job. I think stories like Job's and Naomi's are in the Bible as correctives against the kind of thinking Job's friends have and that Naomi has here. Thinking that earthly suffering works along some sort of predictable formula where suffering equals punishment for sin. thinking that I am suffering, therefore it must be God's wrath plus my sin has caused this suffering. Now it's true that God promised Israel that the consequences for breaking the covenant would be serious. So in that case, God's wrath at their sin does cause suffering. So in Deuteronomy 28, 15, he says, If you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, then all all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Most of the rest of Deuteronomy 28 is a list of these curses. Here's the bad things that will happen. And I tried to put some of them on a slide, but the font got so small and things that there's so much going on there. that I'm just going to read some of it for you. It says, The Lord will make the plague cling to you until he's consumed you from the land which you're going to possess. The Lord will strike you with consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with severe burning, with the sword, with scorching, and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. Your heavens which are over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you shall be iron. The Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust. From the heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed." This sickness and famine and drought and things are going to be consequences. But these are consequences for the nation at at large, the nation of Israel, for turning away from God's covenant. Without the Lord on your side, things will go poorly for you as a people. Stories like Naomi's and Job's indicate that when bad things happen, they can't necessarily be linked to specific sins in the life of an individual and since we know of no reason that Naomi would have to expect God would punish her personally her statement in 121 that the lord has testified against her sounds like she thinks god goes around causing suffering for the fun of it and this is the same feeling the same feeling of resignation and indignation that people suffered for unjust reasons for the sins of their ancestors or for the sins of the nation sins that weren't theirs that God addresses in Ezekiel 18. And the whole chapter um, counters the idea that God's not fair and that He punishes those who don't deserve it. Ezekiel, 18:23 explicitly rejects this idea that God enjoys suffering, or enjoys seeing suffering. He says, "Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die?" says the Lord God, and not that He should turn from his ways and live?" So is a rhetorical question. The implied answer is no. God does not take pleasure in the punishment of the wicked. It's not something that makes him happy. He's pleased by the repentance of the wicked. So I think the gospel of grace is not a New Testament innovation. So even in the Old Testament, God's love is, is unconditional. It's not linked to what Israel does in a way that their sin causes God to stop loving them and leads him to reject them completely or anything like that. We can see that in Hosea, for example. It says when Israel was a child, I loved him, and I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. My people are bent on backsliding from me. How can I give you up, Ephraim? My heart churns within me, my sympathy is stirred. It's saying, like, my people are turning away from me, but I still love them. I can't um, I can't turn my back on them. So though Naomi feels bitter because she thinks. God has turned against her. Remember the opening of the story foreshadowed that this might be a tale of God's faithful provision despite appearances, just like Genesis 12 or Genesis 26. God can work through tragedy to bless us. Another indication that Naomi, like Job, has not lost faith in the Lord is Ruth's decision to stay with Naomi. On the way back to Bethlehem, Naomi urges her her Moabite daughters-in-law to return to their people. One does, but Ruth doesn't. And Ruth's response is is well known. She says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. We often read this as Ruth's devotion to Naomi, but what could have inspired such such loyalty? Naomi blames her God for her suffering, yet Ruth boldly says, your people shall be my people, and your God my God. This is Ruth's confession of faith. Some people say it's her conversion to following the Lord, Israel's God, instead of Chemosh, Moab's God. And it may be the moment she makes a clean break with her past and turns to the Lord, but Wouldn't it make sense if she'd started leaning that way a long time before? Naomi's faith has become uh, Ruth's faith. Ruth wasn't just making a split-second decision based on her loyalty to Naomi. She wasn't converting under social pressure. It wasn't like your girlfriend is Catholic and you have to convert so that her dad will let you marry her or something like that. Luckily, my wife and I are both independent Baptists. didn't have to I didn't have to change religions, but that could happen. And there's a history in world religions of that happening, people having to convert under social pressure. I don't think that's what's going on here. Ruth had lived with Naomi for 10 years. She saw Naomi's faith hold through tragic circumstances, but now she saw her faltering. She saw her doubting God's love for her. And Ruth knew Naomi needed her, but she also knew that she needed Naomi, and needed to become part of the Lord's people. So the tragedy that befell Naomi and Ruth in Moab had transformed them both. One's faith was tested, the other's faith was found. Now, when they arrived in Bethlehem, Naomi complains of her sufferings. It says that she'd left there full, but God brought her back empty. It's 121 that we looked at, but empty? I mean, What about Ruth? Ruth had to be standing right there probably thinking that very thing. What about me? Introduce me, you have me, you're not empty. But I don't think Naomi meant to sound ungrateful for Ruth's uh, company. Their world was very different from ours. A woman's place in society was directly connected to the men in her life. Women didn't own or inherit property, typically. It wasn't like Ruth could run out and get a job and earn money to support herself and Naomi. Besides that, she had two social strikes against her. She was a widow, and she was a foreigner. But Ruth one ends with a glimmer of hope, the news that they arrived right at the start of the barley harvest. This news is a hint at one of the ways God provided for the less fortunate. Ruth too begins by introducing Boaz. He's a wealthy man from the same family as Naomi's husband, but we don't know why he's mentioned yet, since it's um, so. Just introduces to one. Here's Boaz. By the way, he was a wealthy man and he was related to Naomi's husband. Now it's the barley harvest, so Ruth asks Naomi if she can go glean in the fields. In verse two. Gleaning behind the harvesters was one of the few ways. Um, that those with no other means of support could provide for themselves. So see one example in Deuteronomy twenty-four, nineteen. The uh, law also says it in Leviticus nineteen nine and twenty-three twenty-two. It says that when you reap in your field, you'll forget a sheaf in the field, don't go back for it, leave it there for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in the work of your hands. Now I could have highlighted I should have highlighted the word stranger there, too. The stranger and the widow. Ruth is both of those. She's a foreigner and a widow. And so the, the mention of Boaz in two one I think, was a bit of foreshadowing, since Ruth just happens to, um, to go show up to glean in Boaz's field. Now This coincidence proves to be the turning point for Ruth and Naomi. Now Boaz notices Ruth gleaning in the fields, He's unexpectedly kind and generous towards her. He invites her to stay and work only in his fields. Sharing his, he shares his food with her. He makes provisions for her safety. Um, he makes sure that she goes home with as much, uh, much, much more grain than uh, would be typical for a, for a day's gleaning. So the text says she went home with an ephah of barley, she gleaned in the field until evening and beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. I'm of us reading that like, ephah, oh, okay, that's nice. Like, was that a lot? We don't know. I mean, now some Bible translations even like convert measures and things into like something that we would understand. But So yes, an ephah of barley was a lot. An ephah is estimated to be around three-fifths of a bushel a bushel of barley weighs uh, 48 pounds. So it would seem Ruth collected about 29 pounds of grain in a day. So, that's kind of a lot. I mean, if you wanted to push it too f- hard, you could say, you know, Ruth was really loyal and um, a diligent hard worker, and she was also really, really strong or had superhuman abilities to gather all this grain or something. But I don't think that's that's the point. The point isn't the weight. The point is that God provided that she would get much, much more than if she'd been on her own. You see, in uh, Ruth 2, Boaz tells his workers, to like, "I hey, don't just forget the, don't just leave the sheaves you leave accidentally. I want you to forget some and leave them behind for her to pick up." So he instructs them to make sure she has you know, more than enough. Now, from records found in ancient Mesopotamia, we know an average daily ration for a person for grain was about one to two pounds per day. So, one commentator says Ruth collected the equivalent of at least half a month's wages in one day. So, Naomi's reaction also tells us that Ruth was unusually successful that day. When she sees how much grain Ruth brought home, Naomi says, Blessed be the one who took notice of you. She's like, this was not normal. How did you get that much? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So at the end of chapter 1, Naomi feels bitter. She thinks the Lord has abandoned her. Now towards the end of chapter 2, she realizes that God did not abandon them, that he still loves them, and that he has the power to provide for them in ways that they did not expect. So if Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And when Naomi says the Lord has not forsaken his kindness, again it's that word, Hesed, that word for God's loyal love, his covenant love, his loving kindness. So God still loves them with his unconditional loyal love. She thought that she'd been abandoned, but she realizes that God is still this God still loves them. So we're only at half of the book of Ruth, but there's several important truths I think we can glean from the story so far. Now first, the story shows us that that God is present even when we feel abandoned. So Naomi and Ruth were going through hard times. It's not wrong to feel grief and sadness during those times. But Naomi wrongly thought that God had abandoned her, or even that he had become her enemy Second, not only were Naomi and Ruth not abandoned by God, he still loved them. You see that God loves us even when we don't feel loved, even when we don't feel like we've done anything to, to merit that love. God's love for Naomi and Ruth had nothing to do with their merit. That is, they didn't do something to deserve it. So this is the gospel of, of grace already in the Old Testament. Finally, the story shows um, that God reveals his loving concern for us in unexpected ways so that we're never without hope. So Naomi did not expect that Ruth would cling to her and stay with her and work to support her. She did not expect that Ruth would happen to glean in the field of a man who would treat her so generously, who was also related to her dead husband. So Naomi thought their situation was hopeless, but she learned that with the Lord on their side, we're never without hope. So close with, uh, with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your comforting presence when we experience hard times. Thank you for still loving us no matter what and for sending Jesus as the ultimate expression of that love. Thank you for your grace, your unmerited favor that we get through Christ. And thank you that we can trust your power to provide in unexpected ways, most of all through the unexpected sacrifice of your son. and Through his resurrection, now we have hope of experiencing your love for eternity. And thank you for that. These things in Christ's name.